this this Wednesday, my wife, uh, she was at home visiting her, well, at her, at her parents' house, visiting them in Tappan, and um, she came home with this container full of beautiful, ripe raspberries. I, I just got, got to love living in this area of the world at this time of the year. It's like fresh fruit is coming in a season and yard work. Yep, while she was picking berries, I was in the backyard laying bricks. And um, see, we moved into a new house down the street here um, two years ago, and the place came with, let's call them opportunities for improvement. Um, and I, I've been laying some pavement stone, uh, trying to create some, just a bit more usable space in our, in our backyard area. And I was just reminiscing about my time. I worked as a landscaper in Thunder Bay for a summer, and I did a lot of this kind of thing. And I, I actually really enjoy the work, because you get to see the results at the end of the day. And my job you see results at the end of very long stretches of time as people come to Jesus and know him. But in bricks, you just get to lay them and go, wow, that looks good. Or in my case, wow, I didn't get that very straight. So I was reminded of the challenges of brickwork as well. You know, in the ancient world, um, the structures were made of bricks. Uh, my wife and I were in Turkey a uh, long time, 10 years ago now, but everything, we were seeing buildings that were predating the time of Jesus and they're still standing, this incredible brickwork, uh, each one in its rightful place. You know, the setting of our text today, and we're, we're reading in Matthew 21, the setting is at one of the most significant stone buildings in the ancient world, the, the temple in Jerusalem. And the setting, we'll see, is actually significant for a few reasons, particularly fruit and building materials of bricks. And we'll see more about that in a moment. In our Kingdom Come series, we've been working through Matthew's Gospel uh, a chapter a week. We've been l- reading large chunks of, ch- of, of, of the Bible, just listening to it, and asking the question, what does it mean for us to truly follow Jesus? That's what the writer is trying to communicate to us as the readers. And so we actually read this section on Palm Sunday. So I'm not going to focus on the initial section of it. We're going to focus on the back half of this. So let me just give a quick recap. In Matthew 21, it really marks the shift in the narrative of Matthew's gospel in a big way. If we'll remember, in Matthew 16, um, Peter, Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. It's a word that means king. It's the God's rescuing ruler. And then... After Jesus uh, says, yeah, you're right, I am the one you've been waiting for, he begins to talk about his death and resurrection. He's talking about how his journey would actually, his, his kingship would mean dying, but it doesn't end on a morbid note. No, he says there is, uh, there is life after this for him. And so there's this great excitement around Jesus. Maybe he's the one that's coming but they're not expecting that piece. If we remember all the way back to Matthew chapter three, we also remember that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Jesus was in this sense anointed as king in that moment. We read that the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus in the form of a dove and there's the voice of the father that confirms his sonship. But now, Now is the time for Jesus to really be recognized. And more than just recognized, he will go to his enthronement. But that looks in a completely different way than anyone is expecting. Kingdom come, yes, but in a a very different way. 
And so the confusion to the, to the confusion of all around him, this is at the beginning of Matthew 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The king is coming to take his city, but he doesn't ride a war horse. He doesn't have a sword in his hand. He's not there to, uh, to kick out the Roman oppressors by storm. He tells his disciples actually to go and get him a donkey's colt for him to ride in on. And, and then Matthew quotes Zechariah in order to say he comes in humble and gentle. And so you see this picture of this reigning king, but who is coming in this humility. He is picturing for us the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that he's bringing. It's not centered on violence or a political power grab. He has a completely different way of winning the victory and of being enthroned. And so Jesus then, he goes to the temple. He rides in, he goes to the temple, the bricks, yes, but more. See, the temple is the place where God's space and human space overlap and interlock. But when he gets there, what he sees is disturbing. See, the temple was to be a place where the nations, those who were not Israelites, would also come streaming in uh, to find and connect with the living God in prayer. There's this court area called the court of the Gentiles, was meant to be a place for quiet prayer. But when Jesus comes into it, he sees these money changers and those selling doves for sacrifice, and he begins to flip over the tables. Now, the main issue here isn't that people were buying and selling things. I mean, the market has to be a market. The issue, and it's not just that there were shady practices. That's maybe a part of what's going on. But the words Jesus cites here give us a clue to what's going on. He says this, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. And that word robbers makes us think, ah, he's talking about money here. Not really. Uh, the word robbers um, in the, the Greek text means something like revolutionaries. They've, they've just got other plans for this space. And so the text that Jesus cites is Isaiah 56, verse 7. And it's about these foreigners, about these non-Israelites being welcomed in to pray and find the joy of connecting with the living God. Let's listen to that text in Isaiah. It says this, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. This is the Lord speaking. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The fruit that God's people, especially the leadership, the fruit was to be a stream of people, foreigners who were coming from all nations to find the joy of relating to God and, uh, through prayer and through worship. But what does Jesus find in the court of the Gentiles? Is it a quiet place? A people ready to be hospitable and welcome others in, to welcome in the nations? No, what we find is a shopping mall. And Jesus is angry because Israel's leaders have taken this space designated for others and they've actively excluded those who are searching for God. These leaders have utterly missed God's missional purposes for them. And that's what the next scene is all about. And this is where I'm going to start reading from verse 18. It says this, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, 
he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and don't doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, for some of you may have read this text in the past and you might have left scratching your head thinking, does Jesus hate trees? Um, it was supposed to be my joke. It's my only joke this morning. Come on, guys. <laughs> it's okay. It was not a very good one. Does Jesus hate trees? The answer is no. Uh, this is a prophetic action. See, prophets would sometimes use their words often to speak the word of God into a situation, but sometimes they would just do something, a physical act, action that would explain or enact in some way the truth of what was happening uh, to explain spiritual reality. And this cursing of the tree was a picture of what he just did in the temple yesterday. See, Jesus shows up looking for fruit, and it looks like a busy thriving ministry. I mean, there's leaves all over the place. There's people streaming in and being busy in, in the temple courts. It looks like a great church service. Boy, oh boy, tons of people. But Jesus looks at it and he goes, there is no fruit. You're not doing what you were made to do. And so the cursing of the tree is Jesus' symbolic reenactment of his cursing the temple and its leadership at that time. He's saying, um, what, the way that you've structured things to exclude those who are searching for God, you're going to wither just like this tree. And notice the disciples point out how quickly the tree withers. It says immediately. First, this is a miraculous happening, of course. Uh, but more, you know, Jesus says if you pray for things, miracles can happen, and they can, and they do. And so we ask in faith for things. Yes, that's true. It shows us as well that Jesus has authority over the, all of creation, over physical and spiritual reality. He totally does. But the point is that Jesus really does have authority as God's son, as God the son, to begin a new fresh work. See, just like this tree had no fruit on it, it withers at Jesus' word, so too the leadership of the temple will become utterly obsolete. Even the temple itself will become obsolete. And it will happen in a moment. How? Just fast forward to the end of this week. On Friday, Jesus' death, when he gives up his spirit, we read these words, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus' death meant that in a moment, the old sacrificial temple sacrifices, uh, that system was over. It was done. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. He actually spends several chapters talking about this, but let me just read one verse. For by one sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Jesus himself, he, was, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. When it was finished, Jesus said that on the cross in John's gospel, when he said it was finished, it really is. There is nothing more that needs to be paid for you to be made perfect and his work of making you holy over your lifetime, it's all done by Jesus. It's finished. Nothing else has to be offered to make that happen. See, Jesus is both full
fully human and fully God at the same time. He is the overlap of heaven and earth. He is where God's space and human space interlock and overlap. He is the new temple. And he tells us so in John chapter 2. And not only that, he is the priest who comes and offers the once for all time sacrifice. But he's not just the priest either. He is himself the sacrifice. We just need to pause for a moment and just soak that in. The God who made the stars and calls them out every night, that same God is the one who walks underneath of those stars when he came to earth. The God who gave you your next breath breathed out his last breath on the cross out of love for you so you could be a new creation to be with him forever. Jesus, in a moment, does everything necessary to save us and to make us his. Our response to that, if we get it, is just utter awe and worship. It's a life of saying yes and amen to all that you are, God, and all that you're calling me to do. And we need to see next what Jesus is. He's setting right the broken um, system of leadership that's in place, too. Notice Jesus, he'd gone crashing through the temple, and if you read that, First checks, and again, he talks about the children praising him. And then he essentially equates himself with Israel's God, Yahweh. Um, you can check out, that's all, I did all that stuff in my sermon back in April on the 15th. So check that out if you want to see more of that. But here's the point I want to focus on today. After leaving that night, after all that ruckus, we find him back in the temple the next morning teaching. Like, bold move, Jesus. Let's see how that plays out for him. Verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you this authority? That's a fair question. They've been put in charge there, right? And they kind of need to make sure that they know what's going on in the temple. Who is this guy who thinks he can overturn tables and then show up and just start teaching people the next day? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it a human in origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it was of human origin, well, we're afraid of, of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Clever, right? Yes, but more than clever, Jesus really does have a spiritual uh, authority over all physical and spiritual, the landscape entirely. And he reveals what really matters in this next section. That is, who is doing what God really wants? Look at that next. And we're going to look at that next, but just one key take home real quick. The religious leaders are claiming to have authority, and so they confront Jesus with, and challenge him. But when it comes down to it, they're more concerned with what people think about them than just answering Jesus truthfully. They're more concerned about how they appear to the people around them than to what is true. And I don't think I need to even explain and flesh out how that might apply to you and I, because I just sat there and went, yeah, actually, that's me sometimes. And you probably have areas in your life where that's you sometimes too. So just let God work on your heart in that way if he needs to. I certainly have this week. But now notice, 
Jesus after being challenged. Now he goes on, you might say, the offensive, and he'll go on to tell three parables to these religious leaders. Two of them we're going to look at because they're in our chapter today. He interprets what's happening through these stories. Verse 28, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to his first son and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not. He answered, that sounds like my kids sometimes. (laughs) But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and he said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? Well, the first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. And even after you saw this, after you saw how God changed their lives and how they set themselves on a different course, after you saw this change in them, you didn't repent and believe him. So Jesus is putting this question front and center for them and for us. Like, who is doing what God really wants? And he brings that to the center of the discussion. Now he's being super obvious in explaining the meaning of this parable. See, when they reject John and his ministry, See, John is calling people to live out God's ways. They are rejecting what God is up to. But notice, they're not written out completely. They too could change their minds. They could repent of their stubbornness and get on board with God's work of which Jesus is the center. But the question is, will they? The question for us today is, will we? Two points. First, we need to see. To miss who Jesus is the one who just rode into Jerusalem as the world's true king, and then to deny that he has the authority to be our loving leader, to miss that, to miss him, that's to miss the point of what God is up to in the world. Uh, In our prayer meeting this last Wednesday, and I invite you to come, it's just great on Wednesdays, an hour just of prayer with people, and it's fabulous. One person, they just burst out and they prayed, it's all about you, Jesus, it's all about you. And it is. It really is. And that question that comes to us is always, what will I do with Jesus? Where he's leading me? Second, Jesus' parables function like a mirror for us. They reveal our blind spots, almost like checking your mirror when you're changing lanes in your car. They show you what you otherwise wouldn't be able to see. They're like a mirror where you check to make sure you don't have spinach in your teeth uh, before you go on a date or that your fly is done up before you come and preach on a Sunday morning. I've got a funny story about that. I won't tell it right now, though. Um, they're a mirror, and this text begs us to ask, like all of them do, where do I stand? Where do I see myself in this story? So let's just pause and ask ourselves that question. Maybe you relate to that first son, that somehow your pattern of life right now has been, no thanks. You know, someone else dragged you here today. And, and you're saying no, and you've said no to the Father. But maybe you're ready to change your mind and say, actually, yeah, I do want to go a new direction. I do want to be about what God is about. And you can. You can today. You can make that decision right now, actually. Or maybe you relate to Matthew, the tax collector, We met him back in Matthew chapter 9, and I'm pretty sure he's actually the writer of this gospel. And so I love that he keeps bringing up tax collectors, okay? He's showing us over and over again that those who are just seen as like the worst in that 
culture, and they really were. They were seen as like traitors to Israel. They were seen as robbers. Boy, God takes those and, they, and, and puts tax collectors like right up front and center. Just think of it. This is the most famous piece of literature that has ever been written. Matthew's gospel has had more impact on people's spiritual lives than any other piece that's ever been written, ever. It was written by whom? A dirty tax collector sitting at a a table that one day said, actually, I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's what God can do with your life too. That's what grace does. The last indeed are first. And maybe you're like, Matthew, this really was your story. And you're so grateful that you said yes to... (laughs) to life on God's terms. And so you're bursting just to rejoice. And my encouragement is do that. Rejoice and continue serving faithfully. Keep tilling that ground for a good harvest. Ready to speak out and sing out your praises. Man, ready to love in extraordinary, extravagant ways. Why is this like this? It didn't have to be. It could have been this big as a tree, right? Because we have people who are exploding with joy to say, we want to do everything we can just to love our neighbors and to serve them. Because we believe everybody needs to at least know this good news of Jesus. And so that's why you send a team to the Northwest Territories. They're on a school bus. It's 30 hours on a school bus each direction. Next time you feel like complaining about your little seat on a five-hour flight to Mexico... Remember our Mexico or our Northwest Territories trip team right now, traveling right now on a school bus. Why? Because they want to share the love of Jesus with a community who needs to know it. That's why we're doing a block party and throwing a huge party for our neighbors. We want to be about what God is about in our city and to love people in extraordinary ways. And so there's that joy that can bubble out in so many ways. But perhaps some of you, some of us, I'm going to include myself here, were perhaps sometimes a bit more like the other son who says all the right things. Notice he said, sir. Kyrios in Greek, it means Lord. Boy, this guy is super respectful. He knows all the right language. Lord, sir, count me in. I'll do it. He speaks with great respect to the Father, but he doesn't. He doesn't do what the Father asked him to do. He doesn't respond with actions that will bear fruit. I would like to think that's not me. The phrase comes to mind, actions speak louder than words, and they do. So this is a sobering text in some ways too, isn't it? Perhaps it's a warning for some of us who grew up knowing all the right language. Sir, yes, I'll go. But maybe our response doesn't really lead us to love in the real world. So how are you responding to Jesus today? His invitation to do life on God's terms. My hope for us, for us as a community, as a church, would be that it would be a wholehearted yes and actually living it out this week. Perhaps most of all, Jesus shows us how even those who are most apparently lost and broken. When we say, yes, God, I'm going to go into the field. I'm going to be about your business. And we do it. We are really living out the kingdom life. And Jesus says those who are seen in, their wor- in his world as farthest from the kingdom, based on you know, the religious leaders' metrics at least, 
It's those who, when they hear the invitation from God, say, yes, I'll turn and I'll live the life you made me for. These, Jesus says, are the first. Man, that is grace. That's what I need to live in. But Jesus doesn't leave it here. Listen, he continues to speak to these leaders. And remember, they're still in the temple, that brickwork place. And Jesus is still talking about fruit. Verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect fruit. Fruit. They're going to collect something. The tenants, they seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come. Let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? It's a group participation time, Jesus is saying. What are they going to do? So the Pharisees and religious teachers, they answer, he will bring those wretches to, wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, oh my goodness, you guys, have you never read the scripture that says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes? Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus is using this parable to explain what's happening at the moment. The parable of the landowner, that's God, and the vineyard, God's people, Israel. He tells the story of what's happening in that moment. The tenants, that's the religious leaders, have treated the servants, the prophets, last of all, John the Baptist of that prophets. He, they've treated them in wicked ways. And so the, the son is finally sent. And the son, as Jesus tells it, is thrown out of the vineyard and killed. Jesus is telling his story. And he's telling it in light of the greater, longer story of Israel. And look at the text he uses to explain it. His have you never read text from Psalm 118. Just look at it one more time. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Yes, the stone, Jesus, of course, is speaking of himself. Interestingly, just as sun and stone have the same English letters, plus two in stone, the Hebrew, an Aramaic, which Jesus would have spoken, um, the word sun is ben, and stone, eben, contain the same lettering, plus one. Scholars often note that uh, Jesus is using this as a wordplay. It's a pun. It's a way of pointing to his own identity. Yes, the, the son is the stone. And it's all about me, Jesus says. And this stone that the builders rejected, it will become the, the most foundational piece of all. It's the cornerstone. It won't fit anywhere else except the place of highest honor. 
And Jesus tells us this stone will crush anything that collides with it. That's from Daniel 2. We won't get into that, but go read it and you'll see why. N.T. Wright puts it well. He says, he, Jesus, is that stone, the Messiah, God's anointed. He has come to bring into being the kingdom of God through which the kingdoms of this world will shiver, shake, and fall to the ground. Yes, this stone will be lifted high, vindicated, will be brought to the place of highest honor, the only fitting place for the cornerstone. But what's the building? Well, the New Testament goes on to talk about that Jesus is forming together a temple. And guess who it is? It's you and me. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are God's temple. He is the cornerstone, the one holding us all together He tells us the physical bricks of the temple will be destroyed. Matthew 24, there's a whole chapter on it. But Jesus is building a new sort of temple out of you and me, and he's at the center of it. See, Jesus doesn't just tell his story here, he's telling your story. Listen again, therefore I tell you, speaking to the chief priests, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Who are those people? It's his temple. It's his first followers then, yes, but it's also everyone who has said yes to following Jesus. He's talking about you. He's giving you the kingdom, and he's telling us, go bear fruit. We might wonder, okay, well then, what is the fruit? It's a big question. We do well to start back in the Sermon on the Mount and talk about the idea of being a city on a hill a light to all around. The fruit, perhaps most simply, is people. People loved by you and transformed by Jesus. As we heard in the last parable, it's people of all kinds, changed by the good news. It's tax collectors and prostitutes and car salesmen and teachers and police officers and drug dealers and pastors like me and housewives and politicians and murderous terrorists like the Apostle Paul and lawyers and daycare providers and those trapped in addiction and social workers, all, in fact, who say, actually, actually, I am going to go in the field. I, I am going to serve at VBS. I am going to get on board with what God is doing through his people in the world. I want to be about his business. Theologian Michael Green shows us how the early church lived this out, where that explosive growth came from, how those people of all kinds of different backgrounds were built into this new temple that is the people of God. He says it this way, that explosive growth was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. What does he mean? He means this, it's not through trained evangelists and pastors. No, that's not how the good news spread. They had a part of it but a very, very small part. How did the good news of Jesus lead to explosive growth? Here's how. It was one slave chained up, rowing in the bottom of a boat, sitting next to the other slaves, telling them how he was so free in Jesus now and explaining the good news and that being an overflow of the joy he now had. It was through informal conversations, Green says, in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They did it, that is, sharing the good news naturally and enthusiastically. Green even cites the pagan writer Celsus, who complained with great sarcasm that we see in private homes the most illiterate and bucolic yokels. That's talking about us. Uh, 
who would not dare at all to say anything in front of their elders and more intelligent masters, but they get hold of any who are as ignorant as themselves and say, we know how men ought to live. If your children do as we say, you'll be happy yourselves and make your home happy too. Green goes on to conclude that these ordinary Christians, having found treasure, they meant to share it with others to the limits of their ability. Yes, and that's you and me. And we get to do the same in our world today. Any disciple of Jesus will be bearing fruit, the fruit of being a disciple-making disciple, the fruit of sharing the love and gracious care of Jesus in our work and seeing God glorified through all of it. The fruit is the new people of God, the church, functioning as the light of the world, that city on a hill. And that fruit, it's the early Christians who went to the dump and they would find children that had been abandoned there to die of exposure and they would take them and then raise them in their homes as their own. And it's you doing the same. Some of you fostering, others adopting, others of you opening up your home in great hospitality for all the neighborhood kids to come and find love and care in your place. It's raising your kids to know Jesus and love him and and praying for your neighbors and serving those in need and telling the truth and being kind and gossiping the gospel every chance you get. Jesus gives the kingdom to you and I and says, bear fruit. And the joy and the motivation and even the very ability to do it all come from what we see at the table this morning. Yes, Jesus becomes the cornerstone. All of the victory is his. But it doesn't start with victory or vindication. The stone the builders rejected starts with the reality that Jesus will be enthroned yes he will he will be lifted up how on a cross that he will let his life break so that you and I can be made whole I'm going to invite those who are serving with me to come forward and and the music team as well this morning we're celebrating at the table this reality that Jesus did everything necessary for you and I to be made his new people. If you have said yes to Jesus, or if for the first time today you're saying, actually, yeah, I've said no, and now I'm saying yes, uh, this is for you to take. Now, if you're not at a place where Jesus is your cornerstone, you can just let this go by you. But maybe today this is your turning point. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you that you remind us as we come to the table that you in a moment did everything necessary to make us your people. And Jesus, we thank you that you empower and enable us to be about your business in the world now too. We give you thanks.